Capital Market Insights from ICMA. Welcome to the ICMA podcast. I am Mushtaq Kapasi, ICMA's Chief Representative for Asia Pacific. We're based in Hong Kong. And today we'll be talking about electronic trading in Asia Pacific bond markets. I'm delighted to be here with Riyad Chaudhry, who's the head of Asia Pacific at Market Access, the operator of a leading electronic trading platform for fixed income securities. Riyadh joined the firm in 2020 after a long career on the sell side and currently oversees all business operations in the region, as well as the growth strategy, which we'll be speaking about shortly. Riyadh, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Mushak. Uh, really happy to be here. All right, great to have you. Well, let's get right into it. So Market Access, as a trading platform operator, obviously has a very prime vantage point in fixed income secondary trading and in APAC, which you've headed up now for almost three years. So in general, what's your take on Asian fixed income markets uh, over the last year? Um, I think probably the best place for me to start is is kind of central bank policy divergence um, in some of the largest economies in Asia versus the West, right? So for example, both the Fed and the ECB have been, you know, fairly hawkish, raising rates for, you know, fairly aggressively. But if you think about the two largest uh, economies in Asia, that being Japan and China, they've been more on an accommodating of, or easing stance. So whenever you see this kind of divergence, which is fairly rare, uh, you will obviously see uh, you know, differences in interest in their respective bond markets. So, so at the highest level, you've got central bank policy divergence, right? So, so that's probably the, the main thing. Um, and that drives a whole bunch of things, you know, view on yields, uh, depending on view on yields that drives primary issuance and obviously primary issuance has a huge uh, correlation to secondary activity and so on and so on. Um, so in addition, what I would say is Asia broadly um, as an investor base, I think you know there's a few different segments here, right? So, so Japan, Taiwan, Korea, they tend to invest in lower yielding assets but higher grade assets. Versus if you think about Southeast Asia, you have appetite for higher yielding assets and even perhaps going down the credit curve a bit, a bit more, um, you know, riskier assets. And when you speak about investors and their demand, are you talking about the domestic investors? Or are you talking about the international investors in those markets or a bit of both? A bit of both, right? So, so if you think about you know, Japan as kind of the extreme where you have domestic investors, you know, the JGB market is large, you know, ultra low yields. When they're looking for yields, they tend to be going to the international markets versus um, let's take an Indonesia, an investor domestically, they can probably get very high yield buying their own asset. They don't necessarily need to go elsewhere. Sure, sure. Uh, the global asset managers, however, look at these things from a few different perspectives. One is obviously they're, they're chasing yield. So again, we see that playing out um, in so much money flowing into, for example, dollar-based assets, like treasury yields have moved up a lot. U.S. high-grade yields have moved up a lot. And comparatively, even though yields, in, depending on the market in Asia, have moved up, they really haven't repriced in any significant way, right? So you've got, again, divergence coming from the, the policy side that's led some of it. Now, I guess bringing it down to a bit more micro level, um, so much of Asian activity is considered emerging markets, right? So, and, and emerging markets is all about fund flows, and then you have to think about, okay, which indices are these investors following? So for example, are they following MB on the on the hard currency sovereign side? Are they following GBIEM on the local market side? And 
how do those flows look, right? So then if those flows are not coming in this direction because Asia has a very significant um, weighting, for example, in the global, the most widely followed local market index is JP Morgan's GBIA index. Asia is roughly 40% of that index. So if that index is not seeing inflows, you're not going to see as much activity. So hope that helps kind of characterize the backdrop of it. Sure. Um, just a couple of follow-up questions. That's very interesting. Um, first of all, um, you mentioned indices. And just in general, how important are the indices in terms of the fund flows in into Asia? I mean, I'm sure there are differences geographically or sectorally, but I mean, is, can you can you give a general sense of um, if the indices were to disappear tomorrow, for example, I mean, how much, uh, how much trading would there still be? I think it's a very significant part of the activity in Asia. Um, I think for two reasons. One is, you know, the international asset management community, you know, let's call them passive money versus active money. So active money can kind of free graze around the world, um, but they are often benchmarked to perhaps other peers who might be indexed. So for them, even if you're active money, you might be running, you know, all kinds of strategies, some of them indexed, some of them not, but you're often compared to how they index. And then we've also seen huge growth in the last 10 years in more passively managed money because, you know, for the most part, they have tended to do quite well. And, and obviously passive money's mandate is to hug the index as closely as possible. Hmm. So to the extent that if indexes were supposed to disappear, these asset managers would likely see significant outflows and that would consequently result in a lot, lot less volume. I understand. Okay. And one, just one other question to follow up on your, on your answer is um, you mentioned the correlation, if I'm getting you correctly, between the primary and secondary markets. Can you expand on, on that? And is it similar in Asia than in the rest of the world? Um, it, it is pretty similar. I guess the most kind of first order correlation is that you tend to see heightened activity immediately the days following a new issuance, right? So if you see an issuance from an right. Asia high grade uh, issuer, you know, usually the first one to two days will have the greatest amount of churn. And then after that, depending on the size of the issue, again, the, the larger the issue size, the more activity. Also, investors tend to have, large investors tend to have maximum kind of um, uh, ownership ratio. So for example, some investors might say, I can't be more than 10% of, of an entire issue size. So if an issue is 200 million, an investor may not be more than 20, but if the issue size is over time, over a billion, then obviously there's more activity happening. So there's a very direct uh, correlation uh -huh. that we see immediately after new issue. Interesting. Okay, well, just moving on a bit. So more generally speaking, um, first of all, I just want to thank you, uh, Market Access as well, for contributing to ICMA's Asia Bond Report. So shameless plug for that. Um, it's on our website. It's our very interesting uh, data from Market Access. But one uh, qualitative um, conclusion that came out of that um, from speaking with a number of our members as well um, is that electronic trading has been increasing in Asia. Now, I want to ask you a basic question first, which is how do you actually define e-trading um, from your own internal perspective? And then uh, maybe you can expand on what you think are the key drivers of the increase in the use of e-trading um, in Asia. Sure. Well, just quickly on the data, it's also our pleasure you know, to have our data on your report. You, you, know, you guys publish an excellent report and, and we're very pleased to have our data there. So thank you, you know, ICMA as well. So how do we define e-trading? I think we can really, really get into the weeds, but what I would say is, sure. I, what I would say is, if you think of the evolution of how trading is happening, so in fixed income, it was predominantly, or it remains in many cases, over-the-counter trading, right? So, you know, if you go back 
perhaps 20 years. A lot of these tradings could either could happen between clients and dealers over the phone. So actually, so when I started my career, I was actually doing trades on the phone. Right. Then a lot of that activity moved from phone to chats, um, which but broadly, whether it's on the phone or whether it's on the chat, we characterize that as something that we call voice trading. And then e-trading is usually done via some sort of an electronic trading platform where a client or an investor, let's broadly call them uh, liquidity takers, they would initiate an RFQ or a request for quote via a trading platform like Market Access, and they would send out that inquiry to their to the liquidity provider community, typically dealers. And as you know, there are increasingly new types of players coming in that space. But whenever trades are done via an electronic trading platform, that's how we think of e-trading. understand, yeah, because you're using computers for everything, right? So the, the, I, the, I suppose the, the key aspect of e-trading is that you actually have, um, yes, you, you have this, this specific platform um, that is being used instead of uh, kind of direct um, person-to-person um, in, interaction via voice or, or via chat. It's Indeed. done a bit more automatically in that sense. Indeed. So that's the, the, the actual transaction part. And the other part of e-trading is, so after the trade happens, when a trade happens on voice, you would somebody would still need to you know send a trade ticket. That trade ticket needs to go to the client. Oh, right, right. That trade ticket needs to go to your middle office, your back office, your settlements, and so on. Part of e trading is also once the trade is done that we've basically got the pipes into all the relative functions, into the risk books, into the you know middle office, back office. All of that basically happened automatically without a need for a person to actually intervene and do something. Right. So it's not just about deciding what the trade terms are, sort of quote unquote electronically, but there's also an operational aspect to it. I suppose there's also a reporting and even compliance advantages to this as well. Very significant. Very significant. Okay, great. Thank you for that. <laughs> so just in terms of the uh, the further adoption in Asia, um, uh, why do you think it's improved in Asia? And in some ways, you know, what we heard from our interviewees is that Asia still in some ways is, is a bit behind in terms of adoption of e-trading as we've defined it compared to other asset classes and other regions as well. Right. You know, um, I mean, obviously, because I'm in Asia, I always take exception. What I would say is it's not that Asia is behind. I think Asia didn't necessarily have regulatory impetus to adopt. So if you think about the United States or if you think about Europe, I guess Europe is probably the best example. If you go back in some years, introduction of things like MIFID mm-hmm. had greatly accelerated the adoption of EV trading, partly because MIFID requires you to have more transparency, more reporting and so on. So those things are kind of perfect tailwinds for things like e-trading, right? Because everything is timestamped, everything is captured. So you have, you know, kind of footprints um, and from an audit perspective, very easy to get it. So I think Asia, as we know, there's no single regulatory body across Asia that can say we're going to adopt this framework for transparency and so on. So, you know, we don't see that happening in the very near term. So, so, so minus that, I actually think Asia is doing really, really well because a lot of this growth is is coming organically without the, the need necessarily for a regulator saying you need to do that. And I think probably two things are helping in that. One is because all the largest asset managers around the world who are based in the United States, based in Europe, have adopted it, they all have offices in Singapore and Hong Kong, and in many cases also in Japan. So if they're doing something a certain way elsewhere, because of the operational aspect, because of the benefits that they see, you know, in liquidity provisioning uh, and so on, 
they have adopted that same those same practices in Asia, and I think that's really helped. And the other part is, you know, participants like ourselves, where our business is all about trying to get more transparency, more efficiency, uh, more liquidity, and so on. So we obviously playing a large role in trying to accelerate this change. Okay, that's actually quite helpful, and and uh, I would say. Um, Sounds correct to me, but obviously, I think the easy answer sometimes is oh, Asia is different, Asia is culturally different, so on and so forth. Um, but actually, which is, that, also true. which is also true. But that leads to a, that leads to another question that I have, you know, for you as uh, you're, you're, you're head of Asia, right? You're based in Singapore. You have to think about strategy for Asia. But Asia is, I mean, how many countries do you cover? I don't know, 16, 17, something like that. Um, probably around there. Um, it's very fragmented. It's not homogenous. I mean, there are emerging markets, there are developed markets, there are small markets, there are big markets. Um, I, I suspect, and I have the same same uh, quandary as well um, in my role with ICMA. How do you navigate that difference? I mean, of course, there are similarities, but um, but it's not there is that heterogeneity. Um, and how do you how do you manage that in terms of um, what you build uh, with your um, your platforms? Um, how you navigate the different kinds of regulations, the different cultural differences, as you say, um, and incorporate that into your regional strategy? Yeah, great question. I think you know whenever I hear you know what is Asia doing? You know my first reaction is that you know Asia is not a city. Like this is not Chicago, <laughs> right? right? So so that's number one. Well, Chicago has its <laughs> neighborhoods as well. Right? Yeah, I, I I know. You know what I mean, yeah. right? So in some cases. If, if I look at asset managers across, let's say, New York, Chicago, California, yes, they're different, but it may, there will be some common threads perhaps running through. Asia Pacific is, as you point out, Mushtaq, so diverse in so many ways that we do have to take into account, you know, kind of the, the classic think global, act local kind of way. Mm. So I think that's probably the best way to describe it. And how we tackle it is is, is very much that way. So, for example, you know, when we are talking to investors in Japan, where we're, you know, increasingly doing more activity from, is really to understand, you know, what do Japanese investors trade? Number one, uh, then how do they trade? And that's kind of where we come in. So, um, for example, Japanese investors trade a lot of U.S. Treasury. They trade a lot of U.S. investment grade credit. We trade those products. So there's already kind of synergies or overlaps. And then it's sort of like, okay, how do you trade? What are your order management systems? How do we hook up to those kind of things? So there's hmm. this kind of a regional, I'm just using Japan as an example, there, there, there's country-specific strategies. So just to use another example, for example, Taiwan. Taiwan has very large assets under management in the Taiwan life insurance community. They also buy U.S. investment-grade assets, but they tend to buy long-dated assets, right? So we work a lot providing Taiwanese life insurers data around what's the liquidity for long-dated bonds specifically, what kind of liquidity can they get in market access and so on. So that's kind of at the country level. Then there's the product level, right? Mm -hmm. So coming to you know Singapore and Hong Kong, there's, let's call Asia high yield, right? Now, Asia high yield is not as liquid as U.S. investment grade. Now, when, when bond market is not that liquid, we have to design what we call protocols or ways of trading that hopefully protect both the investors and the dealers. And that could be um, how do we maximize the amount of liquidity that uh, an investor who wants to buy a Asia high yield bond trading on market access. But equally, data around when they are trading, how many dealers should, be, should they go to for that information? And then conversely, on the dealer side, what can we do? What kind of products can we develop so that the dealers feel comfortable 
providing liquidity in the platform? How do we, you know, limit information leakage in the market? And then consequently, that should help the dealers manage risk. So we take very much a, I guess, a product client segment and region triangulation mm -hmm. to land on what should we do. On just quickly on the client segment, again, you've got real money, you know, long only asset managers, you've got hedge funds, you've got private banks, you've got banks, you've got treasury functions and banks and so on. And, and they all have somewhat different needs on what they trade, but they also have needs on how they trade. And we are basically in the business of trying to solve for that uh, in the best way that we can. Okay, that's helpful. So it's actually, it's not just about geography then. It's also not, I wouldn't say fragmentation, but segmentation perhaps um, from a client point of view, from a product point of view, which are relevant in, in other regions as well. Okay. Very much, I actually love that term. I think, I think segmentation is a much more important concept than fragmentation. All right. Um, okay, let's look ahead a bit now. So uh, we, you've actually uh, touched quite, quite well on some of the existing um, opportunities, uh, some of the existing business lines that you have and how they play out in Asia. But looking ahead, I know you've grown pretty quickly over the last couple of years already, but over the next two, three, even five years, I'm not sure what your, your time frame is. Where do you see the opportunities for market participants in Asia, um, perhaps in segments and geographies? And how are you at as market access, where you see the opportunities uh, to uh, to assist in the growth of the market? Yes, um, I would say it's it's we feel very confident about our strategy. I think it's really all about execution on how do we kind of grow this intersection between these three things that I mentioned: product, region, and client segment. And on that, you know, I, I guess the the three points that I would make, or I guess four points that I would make, is one is we want to continue to expand in the region from a footprint perspective or from a client footprint perspective. So, you know, even a couple of years ago, predominantly our clients might have been from Singapore and Hong Kong. Now we have clients in Japan, in Taiwan, in Korea, in Australia. So, so mm -hmm. from a footprint perspective, keep expanding. Um, and are these, sorry, I'm just curious, are these, um, are, are these, domestic branches or affiliates of international institutions or are they purely local inv investors Both. Um, and, and uh, market makers? Both. So in, in many cases, market makers who are specialists in certain markets like, you know, Korean dealers for the Korean uh, government bond market, mm. um, or it could be a large US-based asset manager that happens to be based in Australia, but they trade a lot of emerging markets, Asian bonds. Um, so yeah, both, I would say. Okay. So, so that's one. Um, the other is, sort of from a product development perspective, there's two primary drivers behind why we build product. One is we are continuously speaking to our clients, getting feedback on you know, what do they need from us? What kind of solutions do they need based on existing problems or opportunities they might have? So, so a very much a reverse, you know, we, we getting feedback and then we build product on the basis of that. So okay. that's one way we, we we develop product. And the other way is just purely innovation, right? So, you know, market access has a lot of experience in this space, but we also have a lot of people who have come from traditional firms like buy-side firms or sell-side firms, and we have pretty good idea on if we were to build certain things that, you know, kind of the, if you make it, they will come, or if you build, they will come. So you we have, spend you a lot of- former traders, former investors, right? Indeed. So we do spend time thinking about how do you innovate and what kind of adoption they will have? For example, you know, data is probably a perfect example. 
we are building some you know remarkable products around data that solve for both kind of pre-trade analytics so not just you know i get an order for, i'm i'm a buy side trader i get an order from a portfolio manager and i just go trade it now it's like i get the order but there's so much information that's at the fingertips of the buy side trader of where is this market trading who should i go to trade um you know how do i think about my dealers do i trade on our you know all to all anonymously do i go to disclose there's there's all kinds of uh you know information that they have to trade and then once the trades are done there's a ton of transactional data as well so we spend a lot of time you know mining the data right. to, to to try to get insights out of them and we spend a lot of that you know i actually just sorry just quick quick side question on that i mean in terms of the transactional data i can imagine that would be interesting uh, to you strategically, of course, um, but it would also be interesting perhaps to clients for market intelligence reasons. It may also be interesting to regulators, perhaps for market supervision reasons. Um, are you using the data in all, all of those ways or emphasis on, on one or the other? All three are super important. Okay. I think um, given where Asia is in this kind of data and transparency journey, I feel like um, we will get to the regulators at some point, but I think we need more use cases for that so we can sure. you know demonstrate to regulators that these have been transparency in data have been very positive in other parts of the world and how asia pacific uh, markets can benefit from that um definitely there's a lot of interest from, from for this data from both the buy side and the sell side for different reasons <laughs> but but you know regardless they do uh, need and consume a lot of the data also they contribute a lot of data Right, right, because they are transacting and there's a lot of volumes going through. So again, we try to aggregate a lot of that information and, you know, share it with our investors. So, yeah, you know, very much all three of those kind of uh, data consumers, let's call them, are 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 definitely our focus. And then finally, um, what I would say is, I guess we're we are very much in the innovation business, not just from a product perspective, but we feel like there's a role that we play as a market participant. Broadly, what we're talking about is change, mm. right? And often you need catalysts for change. Mm -hmm. And I feel like because we are in this space and because we're kind of a neutral party, we've, we're, you know, we've got all kinds of buy side participants, we've got all kinds of sell side participants, and we feel like we're kind of in this unique position to you know, influence the rate of the kind of change as well as the rate of change. And that's something that's also very important for us. Well, that's very interesting because I think, you know, in my sort of early days in the industry, perhaps a bit naively, you know, you think of a trading platform as relatively passive. You think of it as a place where people go to trade and it sort of exists there. But the way you're, what you're describing it, it's almost as if you feel you have an active role to play now in shaping that market and in shaping the way people trade and the dynamics of the markets themselves. Very much so. And and if you'll allow me, you know, the way I think about, you know, why do people need to trade electronically? Why do why is it important to for buy side participants to get, you know, tight liquidity or what all that stuff? But if you think about kind of the flow of money, let's call it, right? It it perhaps starts with an asset owner. It could be a pension fund, it could be an insurance company. You know, from an asset owner's, they would put out an RFP that goes to an asset manager. Once an asset manager gets some funds, an asset allocator of some sort would be involved to think about, okay, how much goes to emerging markets, how much goes to equities, how much goes to developed markets. After that, you have kind of fund mandates that they would say, okay, this is the mandate of that fund, it needs to return X and so on. From the fund mandates, you have 
portfolio construction that uh, you know try to execute on that mandate, and then after that you do actual trades to you know fill up the portfolio with the kind of risk that you want in the portfolio. And then once we are at that execution stage, what we find is that the execution stage used to be thought of as a passive activity, which is right. all these decisions, let's call them alpha, have been done, you know, already upstream. All you have to do, trader, is go and execute. But what we're finding now is that the trading function is very much an alpha generator because the industry is so competitive, there's tremendous fee pressure for asset managers to compete with other asset managers to get assets from the asset owners so now at the very top level if i'm if, if i'm under fee pressure i want to look at everything in my business to make sure that i'm not leaving money on the table one of the best ways to not leave money on the table is to trade very very efficiently so i think this kind of flow of money is super important to think about and if you want efficiency if you want tighter bid offers the answer to that is how do you have efficiency you use technology. How do you get better bid offers? You need more liquidity. And that's that's where we fit in. So I think it's not something that's widely talked about, but I think it's very important to kind of understand from a top-down perspective what's driving this thing. It's very much an active role, not a passive role. Excellent. And that's a very good point on which I think we'll have to end this podcast. But thank you very much, Riyadh. It's been a, a super interesting conversation. Really appreciate your time and your expertise. Thank you so much, Mushtaq. Really enjoyed talking to you. Thanks for having me. All right. Well, thank you all who are listening to this podcast for your time and your interest. We welcome your feedback on this episode, as well as suggestions for future topics for ICMA's podcasts. Please also feel free to contact us at APAC at ICMAgroup.org. That's A-P-A-C at I-C-M-A-G-R-O-U-P.org for any questions or ideas regarding our work in the bond markets. And please do check out the ICMA report on the agent bond markets to which market access so generously contributed. We wish you all good health and an excellent day ahead. Goodbye for now. Thank you for listening. For more ICMA podcasts and further information on capital markets, please visit our website, icmagroup.org.